Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 319. I'd like to begin with a special announcement. In the last five months since the pandemic broke out, I'm sure you're aware that we have uh, intensified and heightened, putting it mildly, our output. It was very clear, literally, from day one, that this is a unique and unprecedented time. And frankly, a wake-up call, a historic wake-up call, that in our lifetimes will be probably the most defining event. And the necessity to rise to the occasion and in face of all the unknown, the uncertainties, the disruptions, the upheavals, including the disorientation, we need to dig deeper and find deeper resources within our souls, the courage, the resilience, the strength, the hope, and recognize that not only can we deal with the challenges, but we can come out stronger than ever. So I am honored and humbled to have been part of this with a wonderful team including this My Life program, we focused on themes and ideas that are relevant to each one of us in these unique times. And where more do you see Chassidus' power, the power of Teda, when in times of crisis or in times of challenge? That's when you recognize, that's when you can see. When things are going well, you can get away with a certain taking for granted on a surface level. There's a pattern, there's routines, we rely on our crutches, on our comfort zones, on our security blankets. But <clears throat> in a time when there is a uh, setback and when things are not going as planned, that's when you really see the power of Torah, of Yiddishkeit, of faith, of betoch and trust, the need to recognize that God is in control and that when you recognize that, you come to a certain inner peace. So I'm proud to say that though no one wanted this, no one asked for this, and it's caused plenty of pain and loss and tragedy. But it also demonstrated the power of the human spirit, of the neshama in ways that you often don't see. The response I've received from people, all walks of life, has been also really heartwarming, encouraging, actually transformative, I would even say. Many people refer to our programs as you're a lifeline to us. You're a lifeline. So in thinking about it and in responding to many people's feedback and the back and forth, especially in these times where we in a way are connected more than ever, even when there are the social distancing uh, challenges, so we decided to launch a meaningful lifeline campaign, a fundraising campaign, where we ask you to partner with us in all these activities. We've reached hundreds of thousands of people. We cannot stop. Not only that, we need to increase and expand. So please partner with us. We're literally launching it today on the 5th of Av, the yard site of the Arizal, right a few days before Tisha B'av, which we'll speak about. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash Lifeline and participate in any level you wish. Please be generous. This is an opportunity where there is literally a partnership. And uh, I see it as a gift. And I, I'm not, this is not an obligation on your part. 
see it as an opportunity, as a blessing, and hopefully our union, our partnership on all levels, spiritual levels, psychological, emotionally stronger as we stand together, and also financially, will help finally tip the scales and we truly take advantage of this global wake-up call and really bring the most important resources ever. And these are not material resources, just as the body needs health, needs exercise, needs vitamins, the soul is the soul. And I, and I like to believe that we, including myself, my team at the Meaningful Life Center, are part of the solution, and we hope you join us in turning this wake-up call into a true personal and global redemption, as the Rambam says, one act, one thought, one word can tip the scales and bring personal and global ge'ula tshuva v'hatzala lo'yo l'kola elam kule to the person and to the entire world. So again, meaningfullife.com slash lifeline and thank you in advance for all your help and support. Please share this with others. We have a beautiful 30-second video there. You can see a summation of all the work we've done. But above all, take advantage of it. There's tremendous materials there. Short little videos, short videos like Spiritual Antidotes. There's the longer videos of programs like My Life, as well as the weekly class I give, the the master class. Different podcasts, articles, you name it, for men, women, and children of all walks of life. And we ask you to partner with us in this. Thank you very much. That's my opening announcement. I um, mentioned that we are now in the beginning of, well, it's the week of Tisha B'Av. This is the saddest week in the Jewish calendar, leading to Thursday, which will be Tisha B'Av. We all hope that before Thursday comes, we'll already have the Geula and Mashiach, and as the Medrash says, Tisha B'Av will be then the greatest holiday. And as I've discussed last week and all the time, this is a central theme in Judaism in general, in Torah, and specifically in Chassidus, that what you see is not what you get. On the surface level, yes, the destruction of the first temple and the second temple occurred on the ninth of Av. But as the Arizal says, whose yard site is today, Heyov, as the Arizal says, during, why do we say Nachim in the afternoon, Tishabov? By Mincha, Nachim is a comforting, a consolation, is because the moment of the when the flames were, were at their highest in destroying the Beis Hamikdash was the birth of Mashiach. As the Medrash tells us, which seems odd, in the darkest moment is the birth of the greatest moment. That only tells you that there's no such thing as a negative as an end in itself. Yes, the greatest powers are born in the darkest moments. Now, when, while it's burning, and while it's negative, and while we are in Golis and exile, we don't see it. But we believe it, and we completely trust that the process will come to a conclusion, and then we will recognize that the deepest salvation, the deepest redemption was born in Tishabov. Mashiach's birth day is on Tishabov, and Tishabov in the afternoon. Which is why, a few days later, we celebrate Tubaov. The 15th of Av is one of the greatest holidays. It's, it's equated with Yom Kippur because it's direct proportion to the darkness comes the great light. Now, you can ask the question, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why can't Mashiach's birthday be on Pesach, on Shavuos, on Yom Tevim, and other special days? 
So this goes deeper, especially as this explains it. Why is there darkness in the first place? How there, could there be a world that a Roman Empire, and before that a Babylonian Empire, can even come and touch the Holy of Holies, the holiest place on earth, God's Holy of Holies? Where do they have that power? How could we live in a world where that's possible? So that takes us back to the purpose of existence. God created a world that has independent consciousness. In the words, the famous words, cited in front of the Medrash, Tanchuma, in different places, the Alter Rebbe, chapter 36 in Tanya, the purpose, Tachlis Briyas Ha'ilamus, what is the purpose of creation? Nesava Kodesh Baruch God desired, Lies Le'ezbaruch Dira B'Tachtein, as the Rebbe Rashab would add the word Yezbaruch, Lies Le'Dira B'Tachtein, a home, a dwelling place. In Tachtenim, Alter Rebbe continues, what is Tachtenim? Tachtenim means the lowest. She says, not lowest in space. Lowest in revelation. That in the whole Seder Ishtalshlis, which is the cosmic order, there are different levels of divine revelation. Atzillus, of course, is a world of godliness. Briya is more concealed. Tachtenim is the lowest place where the darkness, where the concealment is so intense that you can't t- recognize the divine within existence. And in that itself, at, to the point of a darkness that's so dark that it conceals that it's dark, it's filled with all types of negative forces, to the point that they say, I and nothing else, they deny God altogether. Eneid Mulvadei is the reality that there's nothing but God. And they say, Aniva Afsi'eid, Eid, nothing but me. The antithesis in every possible way to the truth of, of existence that God is the only reality. So in this space, which according to how the Arizal explains it, the Tzimtzum this space, conceptual space, that allows for another consciousness to emerge beyond the divine consciousness with the purpose of creating a dirabatahtainim, that leaves room. And that leaves an afsharius, a possibility that in that space will be misunderstood. Because the concealment which allows for us to be tahtainim, in order for us to connect to the divine, also lies allows for the possibility that we choose to say, you know what? This is our natural reality, this concealment. Who says we have to change anything? We're deceived by the concealment to think it's an end in itself. The famous example brought in so many places. Echsidis, the Rebbe cites it often. That what? That the concealment is such like a parent, a father hiding from his child, in order to elicit the ingenuity of the child to find the father, the parent, the father found, hid, concealed himself so well that the child at some point stops looking, gives up to the point he says maybe he's not there and he forgets. He forgets that the whole point was for him to find his father and he goes off on his own agenda. That's of course when it turns south, it turns negative. Never forget the words the Rebbe uttered Tu B'Shvat Tav Shilam was 1979. The Rebbe speaking, he brought this example. And the tears, and it was just, uh, what can I say, it was a, uh, 
so heart shattering describing this example how the father hides the son looks and it was said Sunday he's looking for his father Monday he's seeking Tuesday he's looking and at some point he gives up says that why is he responsible as the child the father hid himself so well And when do we see that most? Of course, in this week of Tisha B'Av, the concealment of all days of the year. The deepest concealment is when? In the nine day, in the three weeks in general, in the nine days more specifically, and the nine days itself on Tisha B'Av. The deepest concealment. But within the concealment lies the whole purpose. Why was there a concealment in the first place? Because that's Nesava Kodesh Baruch Atzmus. The essence of the divine wants Tachtayim. No, he doesn't want the concealment as an end in itself. Chassidus says that Simtsum is It's not what he wants. It's a means to an end. He wants the Dirabitahtainim. But there can only be a Dirabitahtainim if there's room for an independent entity to be a Tahtan. A Tahtan, in other words, there's no revelation. And yet, it's not airtight that Tahtan, that the lowest of existence, lowest levels of existence, should seek out the Father. But after years, sometimes we give up. So therein lies in the darkest moment when the, burn, when the temple is being burned by the worst enemies possible. As the fire is at its highest is the birth of Mashiach because that's the whole purpose of why the, the, the concealment happened in the first place. So it's not the Romans or the Babylonians or anyone has power. It's God created a concealment and part of the reality is that the concealment allows for negative forces to dominate. Yes, it's tragic, it's very sad. But the story is not over. Because within it all lies embedded, whether we see it or not, the purpose of it all, the coming, the birth and the coming of Mashiach and the Gula. So Tisha B'Av is a paradoxical day. On one hand, yes, it's the epitome, it personifies the ultimate concealment. And yet the whole concealment is personifies in the essence of the divine to create a reality where the divine can be concealed. Think of that. The divine, which is absolute reality, is allowing for another entity to emerge, which is our consciousness. And those that want to make the mistake, make the mistake. As, as God told Moshe Rabbeinu when he saw the words, Nasa Adam, we shall create man in the divine image. What kind of we? It suggests a duality. People will, mis- will make a mistake. So the, the God says, if you want to make a mistake, so those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. What does that mean? Because all of existence, God created an agnostic universe. He leaves, leaves room for us to either seek or not seek. So we need to be wise and see through the curtain, see through the smoke screens, see through the concealment that it's only meant to bring out the best in us. And no matter what happens, and no matter what has happened in history, and much has happened, many dark moments, we did not give up. And we're here. And we're standing. And we're not living in Nazi Europe. And we're not living in the communist, the former Soviet Union, and under pogroms, and crusades, and inquisitions, whatever order. 
and the massacres and the persecutions and the expulsions and so on. We're here, we're talking about it. And we're told by the Rebbe and by all the Simonim and the Gemara and throughout all the Sifrikei, the holy books, that we're at the threshold of it finally erupting. What erupting? All the good that was done and piercing the darkness and bringing the ghoul. This is how the Teirich, Siddis, looks at a week like this. And the lessons are, are, are astounding because they teach us there's no such thing as being destroyed. Nothing can kill us. There's always going to be the ember. There's always going to be the spark somewhere deep inside. Yes, there'll be difficult moments and there have been difficult moments. And now we're going through our own challenges. I can't compare it to the past, to the history of our parents and grandparents. But whatever the challenge may be, the story is not over until the revelation returns. And now it's up to us to not allow setbacks, not allow concealments, not allow all the different challenges we face to impede our way or in any way obfuscate that march forward, the march forward toward progress, toward, yes, a generation and a time where we will celebrate Gula Amitiz Vashlema. That these days will be transformed, as I pointed out last week a number of times. Not just it will be eliminated. Yehovchu means they'll be transformed because their real purpose will be revealed. That's called transformation. On a personal level, it means that every challenge is meant to bring out deeper strengths within us. And of course, this one couldn't, couldn't be more apropos today with all the uncertainties and the unknowns that COVID-19 has brought on, all its secondary effects, its exponential impact on us, our communities, on the world. But we've been around, we've seen. In every generation, there were enemies that stood up and tried to annihilate us. Now it's a different type of enemy. It could be a psychological, emotional one. But we come out stronger than ever. So Tishabov has very powerful lessons for us. And being that Tishabov is Thursday, now we're on Hey Tavis. So I mentioned Darizal quite deliberately, because Darizal, such a force in history, taught us about the Tzimtzum, gave us a new way of looking at how exi- the, the existential loneliness of our lives, the possibility, how we explain the ability that a world can be so concealed. In a sense that the result taught us what Tisha B'Av is, the dynamics of Tisha B'Av, but also the positive light that lies in the deepest darkness. Because in order to create a symptom, to conceal, you need a lot more power than to reveal. You look at an individual, you talk about, a, let's say, a brilliant a person, a Tamil Chachem. What takes more strength, for him to teach or for him to be silent? You ask him, you ask him his opinion, there's something happening. Is it easier for him to give an opinion or easier to restrain himself? Of course it's easier to give the opinion because he knows. Restraint, concealment for the parent to hide from the, the, the child requires more energy. Kav So the same thing in the symptoms black hole lies more power than in the energy of the Kav and the energy of Eirein Sof before the Kav because the symptom was able to override the Eirein Sof. So truthfully, it wasn't really a concealment from the perspective of the divine consciousness, the divine energy. But the fact that from the recipient's point of view, that Simpson dominates over air tells you what kind of power it has. Except it's inverted power. Like we talk about a black hole. 
that the power of gravity is so strong, it doesn't allow light to escape. The power of the Koyach HaGvul, the Koyach HaTzimtzum, I should say. Hein Hein Gvuresov, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Shaykh Rudvamuna. The power to restrain, to conceal, comes from a deeper place than the power to reveal. And that power, when it's finally tapped and unleashed, is indestructible. That's why the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi, the Geula will be one. Geula Shein Acharei Golas. Now will be a Geula. There will never be another concealment after that. Because once you tap into such so-called concealed energy, then you create something that no concealment can ever challenge again. So the first time, meaning when the symptom happened, first time, I don't mean this in time, conceptually, it's happening right now, then yes, concealment override, over, overrided, overrode, not sure how you say, but it definitely, the, the concealment was more powerful than the revelation. And then once you transform that, not you dismiss it or you ignore it. You transform that concealment and you recognize that concealment is only there to bring out our deepest strengths. Then you have something that was forever indestructible, forever a gu'ula, forever that will never be destroyed again and a permanent state of connection, which of course will then allow us to grow step by step, but grow not from negative to positive, from concealment to light, but in light itself, from one level to another level, which of course is an infinite journey. So, Darizal, one more point about Darizal, which I always is always marvel at. Darizal was on the scene in the public barely two years, a year and eight months, I believe. He came to Tzvas, immediately was recognized as something of a different reality, and Tzfas was not, Tzfas was then the hub of so many great scholars. You're talking about the Beis Yosef, the Alshech, the Shlem al the Ramak. The list goes on. The Shalom writes, the Shalom who lived in Krakow and other country cities in Europe, in his last years he came to Israel. So he traveled through Damascus. He met the Rab Chaim Vital there. Rab Chaim Vital showed him the writings of Darizal. He writes in the Shalom, writes these words that these teachings, from the time of Matan Teda, there was nothing like this. That's what he writes. And the Shalom was one of the greatest scholars in history. From the time of Matan Teda, we're talking about the time we're talking here, <laughs> you're talking about Meshul, Yeshua, Yeshua, the Skenim, the Nevi'im, you're talking about the Tanoim, the Amaroim, Rabbonu Savaroi, the Ge'enim, the Rashenim. So there's something about that Izal that it's very clear that these greatest of scholars were in awe of. And it's also interesting that Izal united everyone. Except for one, I think, one rare exception in Europe when news came about that Izal, he was skeptical until later understood that his skepticism had no, had no, had no place. Everybody accepts him. Sfardim Ashkenazim, Chassidim, Nachassidim. Arizal. Similar to Rav Shimon Bar Yechai. Now you find in, throughout history there were, there were Rambam was not accepted by everybody. There were those that actually did not accept him. They even burned his father. Later the Ramban and others, Aisnatsos, they defended him and explained. So it's not common that all Jewish communities should unite around someone. So thought, I, I've not seen this, but it comes to mind 
that since the Rashbi's yard site is also during a sad period. That Izal is also is this period of the nine days. Because Magdim Rafulamaka, these individuals uniquely represented unity. Unity and Teda, first of all, between the soul and body of Teda, the Shmosa Daraisa, and Gufa Daraisa, the body and the soul and body of Teda. Which by extension is the unity of all people. Because when you touch the soul of something, from the soul's perspective, we're all connected, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 32 in Tanya. So these are, that's why they're uniquely, their yard side, the day when their whole Aveda and everything they did gathers together and elevates and blesses us and Pail Yeshua's Bekat of Oretz, impact us, us, as the Alter Rebbe says in the Geras HaKedosh, Simen Chav Zayin, Chav Ches. So they're uniquely fit to be the antidote to the the dishonor shown, the lack of respect shown by the students of Rabbi, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. And that Magefa, that plague ended on Lag Beimer. And the Arizal comes fifth of all, right before Tishabov, which the second temple was destroyed due to Sinas Chinam, divisiveness. Who better to counter that are forces of unity, Rajbi, Arizal. And to throw it in, and Rashkedish of. Whose yard side is that? Aaron Akrain. Also, Havid Mitamidiv Shalom, Mitamidiv Shalom, Oyev Shalom, Varedev Shalom, Evis Abrius, and Makarvan Later. Aaron was distinguished by his bringing love and Shalom bias among the people. It says in Svarim Echsidis that Aaron, first letters of Aaron, Aleph Hey, are like Ahava, love, Chesed, Koyen, Isha Chesed. So all these individuals come in a time when we need that type of unity. And they unite people, and they unite all the parts of Teirah. Of course, the lesson to us, we need more than ever. The loy Mozart Kodesh Baruch Hu Klei Mazik Bracha El HaShalom. Unity, peace, wholesomeness, connection, love. The greatest antidote to all our problems, both individually, family, familial, on a family level, on a communal level, and of course on a global level. Okay. With that, let us go to some questions. Well, first, a little, a little housekeeping. I know that uh, this may sound like, for some, I'm just repeating myself. We are marking the essays as we speak. We're finishing up where we left off right before Pesach, when, when we officially were going to announce the winners, but then COVID and God had other plans. We're going to finish the marking, and we will announce the winners. So please... Just be patient. This is, I mean, I don't feel defensive or feel any way I have to explain, but I think because people have invested so much time and energy, we absolutely honor that, and the marks will come out, and we will announce the winners. So stay tuned. A few other housekeeping announcements. So someone writes, actually a technical question. When I want to hear what you have to say about a particular topic, often in several different videos, where can I access a Myra McCamus sources? Thank you for your priceless guidance. So please go to chsidisapply.com and you can search by topic. If you have a topic, you want to hear about uh, reincarnation, you want to hear about tzimtzum, you want to hear about um, chsidis advice for, for marriage, you want to hear about other things, just type in the words, keywords, whatever comes to mind. And the topics, every, every program is listed with topics. As a matter of fact, the YouTube version is also time-stamped, which means you can click 
and it takes you straight to that part of the program. You don't have to listen to the entire hour. And just go, use, please take advantage of these resources. They're free resources. We put a lot of work in it, which is one of the reasons we're running the campaign, because we need support to keep building this and keep expanding it. So just go to chassidahsupply.com and type in whatever words you want, and you'll hopefully find what you're looking for. Since I'm mentioning that website, that's where you also have an anonymous form, completely anonymous, where you can submit any question, any thought, any comment, and uh, I will definitely address it. There's a lot of backup. There's a lot of questions that come in. It's only been growing and accelerating, thank God. So please don't hesitate and write. It may take a little time. Sometimes I consolidate them, try to time, time them based on the times in which we are in. And you'll also find all the previous episodes I just mentioned, as well as essays from all the years of the contests and other resources around Ayin Bays and Samachavov. And here I also invite you all to a daily, week, a daily class I give every day except Shabbos at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. On Sundays it's 10 a.m. And it's a wonderful class. Just join us by Zoom. Or it's also now on YouTube. So just go to chassidahsupply.com, type in Ayin Bays, or go to ayinbays.com and you'll see the details of the Zoom address, the Zoom room that you can uh, enter and, uh, and participate. Another few comments. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your priceless guidance. Okay. Thank you for the Yom Kippur Nigan that you sang last week, Reb Simon. Gewaldic stuff. Great answers as usual. Love. Definitely keep singing. Very powerful. That's another writer. Shalom, dear Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your weekly master class on Chassidah Supply Talks, which are beyond excellent. Okay. <laughs> I thank you for all these beautiful comments. We all know that every uh, compliment is meant to evoke even more strengths and more resources and more programs. So I assure you, I will do whatever I can, my ability to use my skills and talents and everyone I can inspire to continue because we have a goal to meet, and that is to reach 7.8 billion people and counting. We want a world that's filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Nothing less will do. We have to do our part, and no question God will do his part. But we have to keep trucking, we have to keep forging ahead, we have to keep being stronger, and march toward that destination. And we need to do this together. So please, partner with me, spread the word. That's the key thing. Because when each of us spreads it to another, shares it with friends, that's the ripple butterfly effect that ultimately transforms the world from das tachten. Obviously, God can do his part in his way. We don't need to shortcut the whole, short circuit the whole process. But we still need to do what we need to do, as the Rebbe said, do everything you can. Maybe there'll be one or two or three of you that will come together and strategize. So that's exactly what I. My, I've set out the objective to fulfill that directive. And as I said, please join me in every possible way. Okay. With that, we did um, a question now. Okay. As I said, I tried to address all questions, even those that are not always so uh, po politically correct or pleasant. But So someone writes, um, oh, before I continue, let me give cross-referencing to other episodes where I discussed Hey of and Tishabov, episodes 77, 120, 173, 221, 222, and 270 and 271. Yes. Now, someone writes, a cause for concern 
What's the cause for concern? <clears throat> Excuse me. What do we say to someone who argues that there's no need to fast on Tisha B'Av or other fast days since we are in Mashiach's times? Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first I, must, um, first I must once again commend you for tackling some very difficult questions. I must commend you for speaking truth and calming our fears, giving us focus in these chaotic times. I would like to call attention to a certain sector of the community who almost every year since Gimel Thomas has touted, since we are in Yomaisa Mashiach, the days of Mashiach, we don't have to fast for the, on the 17th of Tammuz and Tishabov, and they show quote-unquote proof. One of these groups sent me a letter to this effect. I tried, I tried explaining to them and others that they have misinterpreted this and their proofs. Can this issue be addressed? It's misleading many unassuming Jews. Okay, well, I, to me it's so obvious and a given, but clearly not everything is an obvious and given to others. We have a Torah. So let's start with this. How do we know Mashiach is going to come? How do we know it's Mashiach? How do you know anything? Because we have a Torah. This isn't based on whims and personal feelings. We have a Torah. The Eberster gave a Torah and said in the Torah what he wants and said that there will be Mashiach will come and he gave signs said, what we need to do, speed it up, to speed up Mashiach's coming. Our The list goes on. That's what it takes. Any place where there's a doubt or question, even when there's no doubt in question, we don't come up with our own laws, our own rules. There's a Tate. The Tate talks about, Hilchas Tainius talks about fasting and the reasons behind it and what days you fast. There's Shulchan Aruch for this. So I'm not sure exactly even how there's a Havamin. That someone's going to override what the Torah says. Listen, you want to do whatever you want? That whole world is doing whatever they want. But don't claim that you're coming a Torah and talking in the name of Mashiach. There's a Torah for these things. You have a Shiloh, go to Adolf. So I'm not sure, Bechlal, where anybody's getting any type of direction and guidance. It's complete Amaratzis. It's not just Hefkate, it's wild. It's Amaratzis, it's ignorance. Someone's going to decide, you know what? I don't want to keep Shabbos because whatever I found some medrash that Mashiach comes, it'll be afterward. Mitzvah's potatoes lost. The mitzvahs will all be eliminated. There's a Maimah Chazal like that. The Gemara says. So why do I do mitzvahs? Mashiach is here already. This is, this is, makes sense. Even if you find that Maimah Chazal, you pass an halacha based on that. I mean, to me, the whole thing is ludicrous, to be honest. But since you're asking the question, and yes, there are many unassuming people who don't know better, and people start citing sources. There's a Teirah Shulchan Aruch, unheard of, that somebody should come and decide that there's no fast day. I don't even know what it's like, Leib Shuftin asking, B'chal not doing. It's completely not something on the, on the map, on the discussion even. You could say there's two ways to interpret a Sikha, what the Rebbe means, about this detail, that detail. But tampering with halacha, we didn't find a precedent for that. The Rebbe, the Rebbe would, I mean, halacha is the essence of Teirah. You have a shayla about something, ask a rov. You don't want that rov, go to two rov on him. So I'm not sure, proofs ahead, proofs ahead. Bring a rov that paskins, no rov will paskin such a thing. No rov could paskin such a thing. Not fasting, you decide when yes, when not. So the whole thing to me is, is, is absurd and completely not even worthy talking about. But since some people have brought up the question, I'm not the first, it's not the first time I've heard this question. So let me set the record state. And I think it, I said it pretty unequivocally. I know very often I say there's a gray area, case by case, and some people don't like that. 
But the truth is, <laughs> that's a fact. It is case by case. But there are things that are pretty much black and white, that are black and whites. Halach is one of them. And there's no... Pekoach nefesh, yeah, person is not well. So then, even Yom Kippur. But that's for a different reason completely. So that's my response, and I hope and use, use it well. If anybody comes up with anything, you can let them... I'm not, I'm, they don't not necessarily respect what I say, but you can tell them what I've said, and let them add it let them go find a halacha and otherwise. Okay. Good. Next question is, performing a mitzvah... Okay, here's the question, one second, let me read it. Which takes precedent? Doing a mitzvah or helping my wife? Okay, performing a mitzvah spouse which takes priority. Even though Friday night minion is back, my wife has asked me to stay to instead remain at home to help out with our young children. Which takes priority? The duty to fulfill a mitzvah or the mitzvah of Shalom Bayis, prioritizing my wife's requests? Well, if indeed there is a choice to be made and they both can be done, there's not even a question. Of course Shalom Bayis comes first. The halacha for that too, the end of the laws of Hanukkah, the Rambam says, if you have money only for one lighting a flame, and it's either near Hanukkah or near Shabbos, so you would think, I'm explaining, you would think you would light Hanukkah, it's once a year, Shabbos every, every week. No? Because near Hanukkah, lighting a Hanukkah light is for Pesumanisa, to publicize God's miracle. Lighting a Shabbos candle is for Shalom Bayis. And the whole Torah was not given to Shalom, only for peace in this world. The Rambam brings there to the point God says, erase my name to preserve peace between husband and wife in the laws of Seita, when they put the name of Hashem on her tongue and it could be erased, God's name, which is a severe thing. That's the bottom line. So that tells you everything you need to know. If indeed there's, you need to choose. And Shalom Bayis is a much greater mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah versus something that's not a mitzvah. It's a greater mitzvah. And it's actually a mitzvah that brings other mitzvahs. Because clearly if the Torah says Shalom comes first, Shalom Bayis comes first, that is because it's going to lead you to other mitzvahs, not because it's going to compromise, God forbid. Now, in case-by-case basis, going back to that, there are situations where you can discuss with your wife in a way that's pleasant, you like to go down, can I go now for a half hour, an hour? Most likely if you speak pleasantly and not in an argumentative way and you don't use a mitzvah against a mitzvah, you don't say, I have to go down, I have to go learn, I would, I would uh, think that in many cases spouses will be kind to each other and respond in kind. But if you become, start kicking and screaming that you have mitzvahs to do and she's disturbing you and you have no time for the children or for her, you can imagine what reaction she would have and vice versa is also true. So we have to also have that type of sensitivity and awareness since we're talking about this topic. Okay. But I appreciate the question. It's always good to talk and reinforce this point, even if it's pretty understandable on its own. But that's what we're here for. My life is applied. The next question I found, very interesting question. You know? Very often, I mean, many questions are all interesting, to be honest, but sometimes a question comes up you haven't quite heard that way. And this is a question, actually, that was born in during this time of COVID-19. Questions about betachen, about trust. Okay. 
the, the short of the question is, does betachen apply also for trusting God to provide, to, to provide us with luxuries? And here's the detailed question. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. With everything going on nowadays with COVID, v'chulu, that's etc., my wife and I have been having a lot of serious conversations about betachen, about trust. This is a huge issue and even more important now with everything going on. Yeah, absolutely. My wife usually agrees with me, but we have one point that we can't seem to agree upon. I tell her that you, I tell her that you can have betachen not only for basic necessities, but also for things that are quote-unquote luxuries. I tell her the story with two people that were having this debate. I think it was in Vilna. One guy said he will have betochen that he will get a pocket watch, a luxury in those days. And lo and behold, a few days later, a gvir, a wealthy person, came over to him and said he just had a large deal go through and to thank Hashem, he wanted to buy a gold pocket watch for a Talmud Chacham. This doesn't seem, however, to convince her at all. My question is, is there a source of chassidus about this? Am I wrong? I feel like if a person can have true betochen, that Hashem will make him rich, that it will happen. Please expound. Interesting question. Because betochen means that not just we believe, we actually trust God, that God will fulfill our needs, our desires, our, our interests will help us in every possible way. So you can ask the question, just rephrasing this question, does that apply only to necessities? Food, drink, shelter, basic necessities. Who says, let's say you desire, you want to have five homes and ten cars. So does betochen apply there? I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to get all of that. Or is that in the gather of Moses, what you do because you want to indulge, God has to give you, indulge you? It's an interesting question. So what comes to mind is at the end of chapter uh, 7 in Tanya, chapter 8 in Tanya, where he talks about Chochmes Chitzenis, chapter 8. He talks about learning not Torah. That in general it's metama, it, uh, taxa, it taxifies, it contaminates the mind. Except with exceptions if you are using that Chochme either to serve God or you know how to use it for Avedis Hashem. And when he talks about, or using it for Parnosa, and he says, even Parnosa Bar meaning beyond what you need. So there's clearly the emphasis there, as the Rebbe explains and others, that there's an element of doing something even more than just your needs. So there's a certain type of opening to learn Chachmas if it's going to help you find more than your necessity. It just comes to mind as a parallel to some extent. However, the question is, what's the limit? What's the limit? So I've not seen anywhere specifically a source that discusses this particular question. There is the Tzemach Tzedek in Mitzvah Tzikalachas, Mitzvah, and other places where he talks about that betochen means believing in God and, and knowing that you do, you make a keli bederech hateva through your work. But ultimately, God is going to bless you what He wants to bless you. Therefore, there's no need to worry whether you're going to make more or less. Because whatever effort you did, it's not about your effort that's going to bring the blessing. It's God's blessing. So based on that, you could argue, your job is to do the, the work. And God, and you can pray to God and ask God to give you ashiris. Birchas Hashem hitashir. 
It's the blessing of a God that gives us wealth. And have betochen that will happen. It may or may not. So you could argue that our job is just to do what we need to do. And whether you'll be on usher or not is not up to you. But you could also make the argument that why not if you do have your, you set your sights high and you say, I want to be wealthy. And I will pray for that and I will make an effort. But there his point is that you don't, that you don't need to make more effort than necessary because it's not going to help. So I don't know if you could apply it to this discussion. I'm just bringing in some things that come to mind in trying to broaden the discussion. So after all is said and done, I, I have not found an exact black and white answer to this question. I would say it may be ultimately relative to the person. Like there are people who don't have an interest in being wealthy. They're fine, but stopping more, they're happy with what their lives are like. There are people who are want to be, but God didn't bless them with that. And they're also Samer Bechalke, they're satisfied with their lot. God will bless them, God will bless them. So they don't have the need, they don't have a betochen that God is going to give them that type of wealth. There are others, on the other hand, who set their mind that they feel this is what they need. Now, does that mean God has to indulge? No. But it could be that God, that you are mechaven, that you actually are a keli. And God does want to bless you that way. So there is an element that betochen can be part of the picture that becoming wealthy and maintaining that type of wealth. But I don't know if you can make a blanket statement that just imagine and, and uh, dream for all kinds of things that are luxuries beyond your needs, and betochen will make it happen. I don't know if that can be made as a blanket statement. I would lean to say not. However, if you're in a position where you already have that keli, you have a business that's growing, you're already wealthy, and therefore this part of your destiny, then it's part of your, also your, your context of, it's also in the orbit and context of your betochen. If, however, that's not part of your destiny, it's not part of it, or at least it's not even in your mind, or even all the efforts you've made have not yielded that type of fruit, then it could be that it's not in your uh, domain to have betochen like that, and you could have betochen in other matters. This is the general response I would give to this topic. It also comes to mind is the Baal Shem Tov story where someone asked for children, they had wealth. The Baal Shem Tov said that the, open, the channel is open for one or the other. You're going to have to give up one to have the other. That tells you also that certain things are predestined, and even though betochen definitely can open up channels, but it's not black and white in the context of that if you have betochen, it'll open up the channel. Like the difference between tefillah and brocha. Brocha, it says, a blessing opens up not new channels, it just takes away the blocks and obstacles that allow your destiny to be fulfilled. Tefillah, you have the power for Yehi Rotson, for something new. So is tefillah in the category of betochen or is, uh, is uh, brocha in the category of betochen? You can argue that tefillah is beyond betochen. Betochen trust is more like so you can get what is, what, you're, what is due to you. Tefillah can open up a new opportunities and have something that wasn't even destined for you. So that's a tefillah, but that is not, is not based on betochen. Is tefillah connected to betochen? These are just some thoughts and questions. I don't, as you see, I'm giving context based on my understanding of the ideas. And please, if anybody has something to weigh in on this topic, a source, or something that can add to the discussion and the dialogue... By all means, I'll be happy to read it and share it with others. Okay, next question. Well, these are questions that came in already. I'm starting to, as I said, integrate questions from previous programs. So, meaning from pre-COVID, I should say, BC. So let's talk about Goy Gumogig. It's a question that came in around Pesach time, actually. 
So let me talk Goy Gemogig. What is Goy Gemogig and has the Rebbe ever spoken about it? So Goy Gemogig, let's begin. In Tanakh, it talks about, in some of the Svarim and the, the Nevi'im talk about, a Melchama's Goy Gemogig. Two nations that will go to war with each other. And it's debated what exactly do these two nations mean, what does it represent, and so on. She continues, there's a prophecy saying there will be a war called Goy Gemogig, and right afterward Mashiach will come. But during every, region, during every recent major conflict, there are some who say this is Goy Gemogig, but it turns out it isn't. Some even say the current conflict with Iran may be it. So what exactly is Goy Gemogig? Has the Rebbe ever spoken about it? My personal theory is this. Mogig is Rosh Tevis, make America great again. <laughs> make America great again, which means Donald Trump will start the war that will lead us to ushering Mashiach. Number two, do we know if the war of Goyga Mogig will be a physical war or a spiritual one? Number three, what is the war of Goyga Mogig? Does this war happen immediately before Mashiach comes or can it happen a few generations before? Number four, Goyga Mogig, hey Tavis. Is it possible that the war of Goyga Mogig was, was, was fought on hey Tavis between Barry Garari and the Reb? Five, is it possible that the war of Goyga Mogig is the battle for control of 770? between the Meshachists and the Antis. Number six, what is the war of Goy Gemogig that will happen before Mashiach comes? When the war of Goy Gemogig happens, will, it be, will we recognize it and, when, and then be aware that Mashiach is about to come? Or only after Mashiach comes will we be able to look back and say, oh, that was the war of Goy Gemogig. So, the original source, and we'll begin discussing this here, if need be, we'll follow up, is in the book of Yecheskel. The book of Yecheskel, in the chapters 38 and 39, describes a climactic battle that will be instigated by Goig and or Mogig and will be waged against Israel and Gog. So it's not a war between Goig and Mogig, it will be initiated by Goig and or Mogig and will be against Israel and God. The defeat of Goig and Mogig will precipitate the messianic redemption that's what it says in the Pesukim there. Some of the most shrouded, cryptic verses shrouded in mystery. Commentaries tried to explain it in different ways. Is it necessary? Will it happen for sure? Could it not happen? And what does it consist of? You ask whether it's a physical war, a spiritual war. What does it mean? What's its significance? Chassidus talks about it a little, but not a lot. So let me just give some takes on it that I've heard and I've read. And again, this is open for anyone who has insight or thoughts. This is what we're here for. This is why my life is applied. First of all, why a war altogether? Why do you need wars? Why can't we just go peacefully? When you read the Rambam, he doesn't speak about Muhammad's Muhammad's in Halacha. As the Rebbe says, in Halacha means it's not necessary. Are there Medrashim and Psukim? Yes, it's a possibility. And it could also be that we've gone through it already. But let's start, why do you need a Muhammad altogether? Well, wars can be for several reasons. A war can be an unjust war. Look, World War II, initiated by the Nazis, by Hitler, Yimach Shumay. Wars by, by enemies, by people who have uh, lust for power, hate for others, or other agendas. There are also wars that are milchamas mitzvah, a war that is a mitzvah to fight this war. Wars that were fought in Israel against the enemies of Israel. Chamas Shus is an optional war. So wars are fought... The bad wars I'm not even going to talk about because that's not uh, what we're talking about. Well, the wars that are fought for a purpose 
is either to correct a wrong or because there are negative forces in this world that need to be eradicated. Of course we would prefer no wars altogether. Some wars are self-defense. You fight the war because someone attacked. The consensus more or less, it's not complete, is one of the reasons is the ultimate battle between good and evil. The evil forces, similar to like the Deir HaFloga, the Tower of Babel. They went to war. They wanted to be gods. So it's symbolic of the darkness of this world going to war with what is true in Emes. Just like Amalek waged war against Israel. Others did. So Gregor represents a final war that will take place before Mashiach comes to his Baruch Yislam Na'advarim to clarify. To clarify who the enemy is, who is right, and establish once and for all the proper approach. Like David HaMelech fought his wars, and after that, Shleim HaMelech did not have to fight war because now everything was established. You could build the base Amigdash and so on. Now, the question is, where is this war? Some say it's happened. Some say it was World War II. Some say it was World War I. Some say it was previous wars. From the Rebbe, it's pretty clear that we're not going to have to go through another war of Goyeg and Mogig, that all the wars have been fought. The Xeris, the, the Mittler Rebbe writes, Aid, we once spoke about this, that there won't be more persecutions and the Xeris meeting like Takvatat, Xeris decrees against the Jewish people. So essentially, all the wars have been fought. Could it be a spiritual war, where a war between, let's say, ignorance, materialism, and spirituality, or like we see a war today between godlessness and God? In the words of Tehillim that the Al Rebbe Rashab cites in Kola Yetzel Muhammad's Beis David, yes, it could be included in that as well. You say that Rambam does say Yilchem Muhammad Hashem, but you're not saying. But it's very unclear what war that will be. Muhammad Hashem will fight the war of God. Some associate that with Goy Gemogig. So you see from all the above, it's not, we don't have a black and white answer. We don't, cannot say it's this and not that. But we were assured that the wars have been fought. We don't have to fight any more wars. The Rebbe made it clear that tr- tr- transition into Gula can be pe- it will be peaceful and, and uh, natural and will not require bloodshed, will not require any negative things. The Rebbe said this a number of times, tell, telling us that Goyga Mogig has been done already. It's similar to another mysterious idea, Mashiach ben Yosef coming before Mashiach ben David. So some say Mashiach ben Yosef was connected to Arizal. Some say it's a stage in Ruchnius, Lavdavka, person named by that. It's definitely the process, like Yosef came before Yehuda as leader, the point is, they all are symbolic of levels. Very often it is spiritual. It could also be physical. But practically now, Goyi is dealt with. We do not need any more wars. So that we're ready for the messianic redemption. And whatever had been fought has been fought. Let's be honest, World War II and World War I left over 120 million people dead. So it wasn't a small matter. It was definitely talk about a, a wake-up call. Talk about upheavals. And following that, it was an age of prosperity. We have our challenges now. I wouldn't call them a war. They're a different type of war. A war within our own psychological makeup to find the fortitude, to find the confidence to forge ahead and not become demoralized or defeated or disoriented. But is that fit into this? 
It definitely is a war that helps clarify things. As I said, it creates crystallization of values, of ideas, and hopefully leads us into a new state of consciousness in a new world order called Mashiach and Geula. That's a brief overview. There's more to say on the topic. I'm not going to comment on everything else said. Most of it is speculation. And what's the point of speculation? Okay, let's do a little follow-up. Then we'll do the Chassidus question. And we will conclude. So follow-up. Let's start a follow-up on masks in 770. Hi, Rab Simon. I agree with you on your approach regarding wearing masks in 770. This is something that Rabbanim and the doctors in the community said should be done. If one doesn't care about themselves, they should at least be considerate for others. I would like to encourage you, if you think something is right, you should come out with it and not be politically correct or apologetic about it. Of course, there will be some who won't like what you say, but you can't please everyone. The fact is, there's still danger out there, so it's always better to side with caution. Hashem should protect us all. And the way the person commented on the show last night, Hashem should indeed protect the fools as well. Hatzloch HaRabba Mashiach Na. It's referring to a previous program where I spoke about this. So thank you for that. And I think uh, it's been pretty clear that I'm not exactly t- towing anyone's line and trying to be politically correct. I say it as I believe. I'm not looking to be provocative just to be provocative. But yes, to be clear, and when we have to state things un- unambiguously, that's what we need to do. But I appreciate your words. Okay. Another follow-up goes back to episode 312. Marriage tensions and external teachings. So we back back in 312. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Oh, it's not a short one. I thoroughly enjoy your weekly broadcast. Thank you for addressing every issue that comes your way and adding light in your audience's live with, lives with your sensitivity. I would like to follow up on this past week's episode. So we're talking about 312, so it's a, a few, quite a few weeks ago. On two issues that in my current situation are related. One, the issue of marriage tensions. Two, the issue of external teachings, i.e. not from Torah sources. I recently came across a post on one of the websites about, um, with Dr. Lamb, who went through a number of slideshows depicting what are healthy behaviors in a good marriage, many of which I tried to introduce into my marriage over the years, but wasn't successful since my spouse didn't see eye to eye with me. He cites Dr. John Gottman a number of times and highly recommends that people should read his books. I have heard a number of years ago that the Rebbe would always say that for professional help, one should always seek advice from people who are based on Torah. However, I have yet to come across such practical books on marriage in the firm realm, such as the works of Dr. Gottman, who, by the way, from the, books of, look, from the looks of it, he himself is from, though his works might be more based on psychology and not necessarily Torah. In the Rebbe's view, would it be okay to introduce such books to a strained marriage a strained marriage, for the sake of making it a happier one. Would this be considered what the Rebbe said, not to go to external places for advice? Noting that these books aren't there to necessarily change and improve the thought mechanics of a marriage, such as Laura Doyle's books, understandably thoughts and ideals should obviously stem from Torah. Rather, these books address the topic of healthy behaviors in a marriage. So to sum up the question, is anything that doesn't stem from Torah unacceptable? Or is there a practical rule of thumb to know where to draw the line? This issue can also present a problem when going to from marriage counselors and not knowing it, maybe. 
They base their knowledge in non-Torah sources. P.S. I heard from very reliable sources that one of the current mashpim in Lubavitch recommends to many newlywed couples that they should read Men from Mars, from Mars, Women Are From Venus book. My question is to the same effect. Feel free to admit to omit names or shorten the question if necessary for video editing purposes. Thank you very much. Now, I didn't want to omit names because this is on many people's minds. My answer is very straightforward. There's an expression, Tere Begoyim Al-Tamin, Chochm Begoyim Tamin. Chochm, wisdom, including psychological wisdom and insight through trial and error or through, in, or through, uh, through introspection or through uh, coming to different observations, exists. And like it is with medicine, we go to who knows medicine best. There is, there is an element of psychological insight that comes from different places. Now, the Torah itself says it gives permission to the healer to heal. Does that apply to psychology? So we've talked about this at length in the past. It's not so simple because psychology, you could say, is the domain of Torah. Tanya, understanding the human soul. If you're talking about heart surgery, you're talking about medical, real clinical medical issues, there there's that permission. But there, is, there are also overlaps. There are situations where, yes, there are excellent psychiatrists and excellent psychologists uh, there are many that are not excellent, but there are also from that are not excellent. So frumkite is not what makes it, it comes down to experience and know-how. So my response would be, if a marriage is in a challenging situation, try to find a frum therapist, someone you trust, you did maven, an expert, but it's also, you did, did maven, who is both a friend and an expert, and see if it's helpful, great. A person like that can then look in some of these books or look elsewhere and help make determinations. Now, should we ourselves look? Look, this is a free country. I'm not going to tell anyone, don't read a book. Especially if we're reading other things anyway. If a book can help, but you're not necessarily going to know if it's really going to help your situation. Some books are, you know, Men from Mars and, and Women from Venus is a lot of uh, platitudes. It's humorous. There are a lot of truths to it. But there are better books, I can tell you, than that one. Is it a bad book? In a sense, going to drive you against Torah? Not necessarily. But that's where, like anything, comes down to where you draw the line is get objective advice. You know, people call me sometimes because I, I know some of these books, and I tell them what I think about different theories and books. Some of them are very good. Some of them address not just marriage, ad addiction, other traumas, and so on. So it all comes down to case by case. Having an objective professional in your life can be tremendously helpful because if he's a Torah person and respects Torah, he can help you sift through which is which. So I'm not going to go now and make a reading list what I think is appropriate, not appropriate. I don't think it's always based on what makes sense. There are many people who say things that make sense, but their underlying uh, foundations are not necessarily uh, Torah-based. And actually can be even antithetical to Torah. So we have to be careful because we're dealing with a neshama, with a nefesh. And a nefesh is sensitive matters here. We're not just talking about whether you take uh, an Advil for a headache. You're talking about deeper matters, and you want it to be in the spirit of Torah and Yiddishkeit. So there are many psychological systems. that ever writes in letters, for example, uh, Victor Frankl's approach, logotherapy, man's search, man search for meaning, and his approach that ever says is more aligned with Torah than other approaches. Freud, on the other hand, is very not Torah-y. Does that mean there's no wisdom there? So this is, it, you see, it's a comprehensive picture. That's why you need experts who know the entire spectrum and they know different approaches and what you can, sit, what you can lift and what, what, what is appropriate to lift, what is not appropriate. Hard to answer a black and white question like that. But to just blanket dismiss anything that's out there that's not Torah-based, I would not do. 
To blanket say, just go to everything because whatever works or whatever people think works is also not correct. A lot out there is really worthless and nonsense and, and frankly could even be destructive in their advice, the marital advice or other forms of advice. Okay, so with that, let me go to the Chassidus question. There's more follow-ups, but we'll, we'll work them in. I'm glad I was able to work that in. It's been weeks. I wanted to say it. Now I didn't. Now I was able to. Thank God. It's off my plan. Does Chassidus, Chassidus question, does Chassidus connect the ninth of Av with the statement about the Sphiris 10 and not 9? So the ninth of Av is the ninth day in Av, nine days in Av. So everything is significant. It's not 10, it's not 11, it's not 8. Then there's an expression in Sefer Yitzira that says about the Eser Sphiris, Blima, Blima, Sphiris have no substance. Eser Veleitesha, Eser Veleyachadoser. 10 spheres and not 9, 10 and not 11. So it's an interesting parallel. I myself have made this parallel. I believe this person is probably referring to that because it seems interesting. Ten and not nine means nine is not complete and ten is the way it's supposed to be. I remember even writing an article after 9-11, 9-11, 9 and 11, but not ten. That the imbalance that 9-11 reflected was very much missing the ten. What is the tenth sphere? Malchus. So although I have not seen explicitly in Chassidus a connection between Eser Velay Tesha to Tishabov, but when you learn Chassidus, you learn, especially if you learn the Nachmu Eter, the Maimorim of Eter, the Tofre Shain from the Rebbe Rashab, which is based on the Irateira Nach, the Etzemach Tzedek. So there's that point here, according to Arizal, that the Yerida, the Yerida of Tishabov was a Yerida Ploim in Malchus. Malchus was the real victim of destruction. Miut halavona, the lavona. Because Malchus is the makabal, Malchus is Knesset Yisrael, and Golas affects Malchus. Malchus is so dependent on lesla megamoklum, it has no light of its own, it has no anything of its own, it's dependent on Ashba. So when there's a severing and a disconnect, Malchus is the one that suffers most. So essentially you could say the pegam ha-Malchus, or say pegam ha-Lavona, the wound in the moon is a wound in Malchus. In simple English, Malchus is dignity, the Malchus of a person. So you could have all the nine spheres, intelligence, emotions, but you're missing the dignity, you're missing self-worth, that you were created in the divine image. That's a fundamental, that's what happened in Tishabov. A wound, an injury in Malchus, a concealment in Malchus. And that's what Al-Rizal says, Tuba'ov is the, one of the greatest holidays because it's the Aliyah of Malchus relative, relative to his descent. So with that attitude, you can explain that 10 and not 9, because 9 means everything but Malchus. That's Tishabov, 9. And we want the 10. Yom Kippur is 10, the 10th day of the month. 10 is the Misper HaShalom, is the complete cycle. So when you have 9, yes, so Tishabov is lacking that. Again, I have not seen a directly related Tishabov to this idea of 10 and not 9, but it, it's, not, it's not a far, a far leap to say they're related. And there may be something in the Kisvaris all about it. I would have to look it up. If anybody has more information on this, by all means, please share. Okay, my friends. Hey of the Yotzet of the Arizal. Powerful, powerful day. I remember in Tov Shalamet, hey, when the Rebbe, it was a very year, a lot of Koch and Simba Mishpat Tepodem. And the Rebbe gave out my morim, he was Magia then, that, uh, those days before Tishabov. And he spoke about that Izal's status, uh, about the fifth of Av. 
So that Rizal should be a moked of source of blessings to us, especially in these challenging times, and should teach us the Yusaydis of the Tehrasa Rizal, of Tzimtzum, and the other Yusaydis of Kabbalah, which Chassidus brings alive, to teach us to see the deeper light within these days, in, within Tishabov. And we should be able to I want to mention again, we've launched, I'm excited to say, we've launched in these nine days when it's a big mitzvah to give tzedakah. Because it brings gula, tzedakah unites us, the counterforce to the divisiveness. So we should be zeichet, through tzedakah we should be able to be zeichet to the gula. So we've launched the, the Meaningful Lifeline campaign. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash Lifeline. It is essentially a lifeline we share with you. And hopefully you can give us a lifeline in helping us continue these vital programming programs and programming. And the schus of Yurtzdoke, we should have a shavel, bitzdoke, the gula amitiz vashlema. This has been My Life Chassid is Supplied every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. It's episode 319. It should be a gebenshte week a Yehav Chiyam Me'el week, and these days should be turned and transformed into the greatest holidays in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.